Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On November 1st, some New Yorkers and some would-be New Yorkers woke up to quite a surprise. Rosemary Ward is our New York reporter. Any job listing for a new position suddenly included some new information. Salaries. So you could suddenly see that a corporate counsel at Amazon could make between $172,000 and $190,000. Or an editor at CBS News could earn between $110,000 and $120,000. Or a podcast producer on a tech podcast at the New York Times could earn between $74,816, to be super precise, and $90,000. These were listings for open positions, either that were based in one of New York City's five boroughs or that could be done remotely from, say, Manhattan or Brooklyn. It really became the talk of the town. All of the city's various email listservs and chat groups for advertising creatives, for lawyers, and most obviously, of course, for gossipy journalists, were flooded with posts from people highlighting listings that gave insight into what peers were making and also the ones where employers were clearly not going along with the spirit of the law, including a salary band of like $50,000 to $180,000. This law was passed by the former New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, but implemented by his successor, Eric Adams, after a delay. The point was to reduce pay inequality. And some employers do seem to have been reacting. The law was actually meant to come into effect in the spring, but was delayed because businesses fought it. Yet even with the delay, a lot of employers were caught off guard, and many of them were left scrambling. There are lots of anecdotal stories of workers being given sudden raises right before November 1st, when they would perhaps see that a job listing for a similar job to theirs at the same company offered a significantly higher salary band. It does remain to be seen at how many employers are following the letter of the law. They've got 30 days to post good faith salary bans or be fined $250,000 per violation. All this transparency will satisfy those who are itching to find out what their new colleagues are making. But who does it actually benefit? You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, we'll ask what's good, bad and unexpected about making salaries public. Because we're pessimists, we'll start first with the bad. So on average, across all workers, we see approximately a 2% decline in wages. Then we'll cheer you up with the good. It holds us to a higher standard. So we just can't have any discrepancy within the salaries because it's transparent it gets noticed by someone in the team or even someone externally and finally we'll look at the unexpected consequences of pay transparency i remember that there was a lot more snooping going on back then where you could just go in and check okay so is my friend's dad actually that rich or is he not or uh, how much does my neighbor actually earn and what these examples can teach us about how to reduce pay gaps without holding back pay for everyone 
Alice, Mike, hello. Hey, Samir. Hello. So, would you like to know how much I earn? Yes, yes, I would. That's nice, but I'm not going to tell you. Very cruel, Sumaya. Although if people are feeling nosy about pay, this new pay transparency law in New York has been a real gift. There are now loads of websites that have been listing salaries that you can go and snoop on. Has it made you reevaluate your own pay? I did have a quick peek at some of the bands, and for most comparable jobs, I think I was vaguely within them. Although some other newspapers, <clears throat> like the Wall Street Journal, were listing bands that were so wide, it was uh, it was pretty hard to tell. I feel like this is a real opportunity for someone to use some time, quote unquote, working, while they're actually just spending the day looking up the salaries of their competitors. Um I was actually looking at the New York case and wishing that perhaps there could be a bit more transparency about pay here in London. Some better British benchmarks might be nice. But then I thought, look, this isn't the first place to have introduced pay transparency. What is the economic evidence on its effects? And so I reached out to Zoe Cullen, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. Zoe, hello. Nice to meet you. Could you start by just walking us through how people normally think about the effects of pay transparency? I mean, what are people's priors on this? So typically when people think about the effects of pay transparency, they have in mind someone who might have previously been underpaid, either a minority worker or a woman who's essentially been facing discrimination in the workplace and doesn't realize it. And then upon hearing what their coworkers are being made, they can use this information and then negotiate a raise so that we see fairer pay, more justified pay in the workplace. And that's typically the motivation for the policies that various governments have been instituting and, and also some companies have been instituting. And what are the most popular forms of pay transparency? Well, here in the U.S., it's quite popular to protect the workers' rights to talk to each other in various ways, typically through punishing employers for retaliating against workers who do talk to each other. Across the pond, within European countries, it's been popular to ask firms to start reporting breakdowns of wages in their firm, typically by gender and by occupation. Right. I mean, I saw that in Canada, for example, university faculty paid above a certain amount, had their salaries made public, whereas in Denmark, firms have had to publish the gender pay gap. Um, Okay, so with all of these interventions, are we finding that they work? Do they lower inequality? So in most studies, and there have been at least nine now of policies that affect large parts of the population and broadly increase transparency. And when we look at the results of those studies, we're finding across the board that pay between men and women tends to become more closely aligned. So the gender gaps have been closing. Okay, so intracompany inequality seems to fall as a result of these drives for transparency. But Tell us about the unintended consequences. So the behavioral response that I described to increase transparency is very much taking the perspective of a worker and thinking about the immediate effects of unveiling today's set of wages to workers so that they can renegotiate. And what we would expect in the medium term or in the long term is that firms would anticipate that there's going to be greater transparency and rethink how they're setting wages in the first place. 
And in particular, we would expect that a firm recognizes that if they raise the pay of some workers, it's going to affect their negotiations with everybody else in a pay transparent world. And so an extra dollar to somebody means they also have to pay an extra dollar to many other employees. And that incentivizes the employer to bargain quite aggressively. And it means that the optimal wages that they're setting are going to be lower on average. And do you see that happening in the real world? The short answer is yes. We've now seen it across many settings. And so the one that I'm most closely familiar with is what happened here in the U.S. when various states attempted to increase protections for workers to talk about each other's pay. And these policies did, in fact, allow workers to feel free in creating, say, Google spreadsheets internally and anonymously sharing their salaries. So we saw a wave of that happening in the U.S. It continues to be the case. And then we've also seen a corresponding fall in those states that have implemented these policies in average wages. How big are those effects? I mean, how much is this transparency depressing the wages of workers overall? So on average, across all workers, we see approximately a 2% decline in wages. To give you a benchmark, that is also what coworkers have found in the case of the Danish context. And it's also approximately the effect of the wage decline in the Canadian context. Okay, but if that 2% is an average, who is not affected as much by this transparency policy and, and who is affected more by it? We see the largest declines in wages are coming from those who have a college degree and higher. And so those who have less than a college degree, say only a high school degree, are experiencing very small wage declines. But we see the dip at around 3 to 4% for those who, who have a college degree or higher. And so you can see between those two groups, this policy has the effect of closing wage gaps. We've also seen the case that workers in occupations with heavy union representation also experience very small changes in wages when these pay transparency policies are rolled out. And that goes to show you how important the individual bargaining process interacts with the introduction of pay transparency. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by the bit in your paper where you looked at the effects of these policies on men's pay and women's pay, and it looked like rather than boosting women's pay above the previous trend, the effect was actually driven by reducing growth in men's pay, right? So so cutting their pay relative to what they might have received had this policy not been put in place. You're absolutely right. So across the nine studies that we look at in our paper, it's absolutely the case that the main effects are coming from a slowing of the wage growth of people at the very top of the wage distribution. And that does typically end up being men. Now, one obvious implication of this pay transparency is that it's potentially quite good for companies, right? It strengthens their bargaining position. They can essentially achieve lower wages for their employees, bigger returns to their shareholders. I mean, don't your findings suggest that it's in firms' best interests to have more pay transparency? We do find that. You might think this is a puzzle. Why, if it's in firms' best interests, do we typically see governments having to come in and mandate it? But in fact, we both see it's in the firm's best interest. And at the same time, we understand that if left to their own devices, if it was just one firm operating in the absence of a government mandate, there are reasons why it's very hard for a firm to commit to pay transparency. So in other words, 
what firms would like to do collectively is different than what each firm would do individually. Like in New York. I guess it will be interesting to see how that pans out. Zoe, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been quite a fun conversation. That's The Economist's take. But I also wanted to hear about how radical pay transparency can work from the perspective of an employer. After the break, we'll hear from the boss of a firm that did more than just add a salary range to job listings. He published the salary of each worker by name on their website for all to see. But first... It is the time in the show where we encourage you to take out a subscription to The Economist. This week, our correspondents in the US will be poring over the results of the midterms. And my colleague John O'Sullivan has written an excellent piece for our business section this week looking at quote-unquote the bezel or where you might go looking for potential fraudulent or dodgy behaviour from firms now that the markets have crashed. And listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. You should consider signing up for our newsletters like The Bottom Line and Money Talks at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Companies in New York are now having to think very carefully about how to set salary bounds on their job adverts. Too narrow, and they risk missing out on the best and brightest. But too wide, and they risk riling up existing staff who will see just how much their employer is willing to pay someone at their level. Yes, and some employers seem to be taking things to the extremes. Uh, I saw that Citibank had apparently advertised a salary band ranging from $0 to $2 million. Yeah, a salary band of $2 million does not seem all that helpful. Agreed. Although after it was reported, Citibank did take down the ad saying that there had been a technical error. Yeah, the day my boss advertises an equivalent job to mine, sets the upper pay limit as $2 million and then tries to claim it's a clerical error, will be a fun day at the negotiating table for me. And perhaps an awkward one for my boss. To hear more of a boss's perspective, I wanted to speak to someone who's been doing this transparency thing for a while. Joel Gascoigne runs Buffer, an online marketing company with about 80 employees around the world. Joel, your company is a bit unusual in that you publish all your employees' pay on the internet. And I will confess that I have just had a sneak peek. Could you talk a bit about why you started doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So... We first did this in 2013. We were around, I think, 10, 15 people back in 2013. And it really just came from a desire to be very open with the team um, and kind of get across how we are deciding to make these choices and these decisions around how much we're all getting paid and to 
essentially build a level of trust by doing that. But it's really all backed by a formula that we call the salary formula. And this has been evolving a lot over time. So tell me more about this formula. How did the process of publishing everything online change the way that you were setting pay internally, but also for for new recruits? Yeah, so the way the formula works is that we really tried to break down what makes up a salary. And for us, it was things like the role you're in, the level of seniority you are in that role. Those are probably the two most important things, right? For us, we generally peg ourselves to San Francisco because that's where there's the most information out there on technology company salaries. So we roughly peg ourselves at 50th percentile of SF salaries. And then location is another one that we had for a long time, and we're actually phasing that out right now with our own evolution of being remote. So we're actually not going to have a difference between salaries in different locations. But for the longest time, we did have that. And so the formula basically works with all these different components, and there's a weighting that each has, and there's actually a formula you can put it all together and arrive at anyone's salary in the company, or even calculate what your salary would be if if you joined. Did it change the way that you recruit? So presumably you state salaries when, when advertising for particular roles. Did the fact that everything was going to be public influence the way that you decided, say, the width of the bands? It changed our hiring process a little bit in the sense that people are very aware coming in, and they need to be aware coming in that this is a practice we have, and your salary is going to be posted on the internet. We have a very small handful of, of exceptions where we don't do that, but overall it is something that people buy into. You just mentioned that there were some exceptions. What would lead you to make an exception? I think people, especially because we hire from all across the world, there are certain locations where it might not feel safe to have your salary out there. There may be some personal situations. And so we try to be mindful and have those conversations and you know allow for some of those exceptions where that salary is maybe not as fully shared. Maybe the name is not shared. It's more just, okay, we have someone in this role that's getting paid this much. What are the downsides of such complete transparency? I mean, you know, thinking about other companies, for most, it would seem insane, right? It would, it would seem like a complete pain to implement lots of employees unhappy. Did you face any of those challenges? I think it is a very challenging thing to make that shift to. Out of maybe the 10 to 15, there were one or two people that felt some challenges. And some of those were interesting, actually, to dig into because for us, we took it as an opportunity to go that step further and talk about well, what are your hesitations here? Could you be any more specific about that? For example, we had someone in Asia on the team at the time, and I think they were just part of a culture where there's much more secrecy, and especially around money. And so I think that was something that we had to dig into and and talk about as a team. But certainly, I I think this is not for everyone. Do you worry at all that other employers will take advantage of your own transparency? I guess the worry would be that they would look at what you were paying, offer, you know, $10 more or something and and swipe your employees. The interesting thing for me is that I'd almost rather that happen because I think I don't want us to be losing people just purely over pay. And so I would want us to be a lot more differentiated than that. And so in a sense, by being public and transparent, it forces us to make sure that we have a lot of other reasons for people to be sticking around. And so 
in a way, I think it's kind of a benefit, but it forces us to be kind of executing at a high level. And so if you had to just list all of the positive effects from this, give me the list. It holds us to a higher standard. So we just can't have any discrepancy within the salaries because it's transparent. It gets noticed by someone in the team or even someone externally. And then the other thing is that in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion, it's improving things there. And certainly for us, we have almost no pay gap between men and women, for example, or even other groups. So I'm going to be very cynical here and ask about a potential benefit for you as a company. Could this transparency be strengthening your negotiating hand in in pay talks? So I guess someone might ask for an extreme pay increase and then you could say, sorry, if we gave you that, we'd have to give everyone that and we can't. What's your response to that? For us, salary transparency is connected with a number of other things. For example, one thing that we do is that annually we will re-benchmark every salary, go to the market data and find the new number for that role, and then we will increase salary. We'll never decrease it, but if you know if it's decreased, it stays the same. If it's gone up, then everyone gets that benefit. I think the key to making something like this work is that people need to feel like they can influence it and people need to be able to fully trust it. So if there's any sense that the system is put in place to, like you say, suppress that negotiating power or to keep salaries at a minimal level, it's all going to start to break down, I believe. Can I ask what the most unexpected consequence was of this move to pay transparency? Probably the attention it's received um, and, and how unusual it still is. I mean, here we are talking 10, 11 years after we started doing this and it's still such a taboo topic. I I find that very (laughs) surprising. Joel, thank you so much for coming on Money Talks. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Samaya. And in case you were wondering, Joel makes a cool $298,588 per year. Good for Joel. Good for him. Now, We have heard about the good and the bad when it comes to pay transparency. Yes, it reduces the gender pay gap, but it can also reduce overall pay. But what about the other outcomes? Mike, do you think that finding out what you earned relative to all your friends and family would make you happier? Yeah, it's such a mixed bag for me. On the one hand, I'm glad, for example, that I knew when I was growing up more or less what my parents earned. So before I went off to university, that gave me a bit of a benchmark on, okay, that much money affords you the sort of life I had growing up. So that's really useful to know for the future. But then sometimes I know what friends earn or enemies earn, and it's a source of, it can be positive envy, using that knowledge to hustle a little bit for yourself. And it can be also more like flicking through Instagram stories and wishing you had someone else's setup, even though you don't really know from a headline salary very much about their job or whether you'd enjoy it or anything like that. So you're only getting a very partial view, that headline number. So I guess it's really most useful if you're going to do it, to me at least, with people in your industry and in your company. And what about you, Alice? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like I vaguely know what most of my friends and certainly my family make. Uh, the only people who would probably never tell me are my frenemies. And I can't imagine I would enjoy knowing how much they make. Or maybe they wouldn't enjoy knowing how much I make. Well, luckily, we have a sample size bigger than two to draw on. I wanted to end by looking at what happened in Norway, which has a much broader and more radical approach to income transparency. Since the 19th century, Norway has made its tax information available to its citizens, in theory. My name is Nina Skankefundemark and I'm the commissioner of the Norwegian Tax Administration. Nina says that before 2001, it was actually pretty hard to take a peek at your neighbour's tax returns. You had to make a formal request in person. But then that changed. Before we had this logon service, you had to visit a tax office and then look into the papers and not everyone wanted to do that. And it got really easy when we got the login service. So that's why it increased the number of people who, who logged in. It wasn't actually the government that suddenly made all of these records easily accessible online. It was newspapers. They set up websites with digitised records that people could search through. The idea was that all this information would help clamp down on tax dodges. But that wasn't how ordinary Norwegians used this list. So my name is Hannah Tallison. I'm the news editor for an online newspaper in Oslo called Avisa Oslo, which is a digital newspaper for Oslo. Back in 2001, when the lists were first accessed by publishers and posted on the internet, Hannah was working at TV2, a TV station in Norway. I was also a journalist at that time, so I can at least claim that that was why I went in to check people. But not everyone had that excuse. She says readers got really nosy, like really nosy. In busy periods, the tax return website was more popular than YouTube. And I remember that there was a lot more snooping going on back then, where you could just go in and check, OK, so is my uh, friend's dad actually that rich or is he not? Or uh, how much does my neighbour actually earn? And the technology enabled them. There were apps to rank your friends according to how much they got paid. Honestly, it sounds pretty horrifying. But for economists, it was exciting because it provided what they like to call a natural experiment. In this case, about the impact of all that transparency on overall well-being. A study by Ricardo Perez Truglia of the University of California, Berkeley, found that the change coincided with richer people becoming happier and poorer people becoming more miserable. By a lot. The gap in happiness between the rich and poor, as he measured it, increased by 29%. Average happiness didn't change. Now, maybe poorer people were treated worse, as others learned that they had lower incomes, or maybe people just didn't like finding out that they were relatively badly off. Whatever it was, the government stepped in. Cecilia Herk, the chief human resources officer for the Nordic Operations of Telenor, one of Norway's largest and oldest companies, told me about it. So now you have to have a code and you have to be a Norwegian taxpayer to get that code to be able to log on to see everybody else's income. However, they will also know that you have had the look. In the early 2010s, who was taking advantage of this transparency became much more transparent. And that had a big impact on how willing Norwegians were to snoop. 
the number of people who've actually asked to see their neighbours and colleagues and family members' income has dropped with, I think it's about 90% since 2012. What we don't know is whether this drop in salary snooping has reversed the effects on happiness that Ricardo Perez Truglia found. But in his initial paper, he did emphasise that just because there were unintended consequences, it didn't necessarily mean that pay transparency was bad. You just need to be careful about how it's implemented. Safeguards are important. Hannah, the newspaper editor, is certainly convinced of the advantages. Our society is highly based on that the people who are wealthier contribute so that the people who aren't as wealthy can have the same opportunities in Norway. And I think that's probably also one of the reasons why I'm very pro that these lists should be public because it gives the Norwegian society, which is also highly based on trust, the actual opportunity to go in and check that people do contribute. What about pay inequality? Well, it turned out that knowing incomes wasn't enough. Starting in 2020, the Norwegian government introduced more transparency measures, mandating big companies to report on their gender pay gap. Here's Cecilia from Telenor. So now we also, in every band, salary band, we publish the male pay and the female pay. And when there are differences, we also explain what we're going to do about them. A question I had when learning about all of this was, is Norway weird? Does their high-trust society enable them to have more transparency than other places? Now, the study from before did look at survey evidence, and it suggested that income transparency wasn't much more important to Norwegians than it was to other European countries. So maybe it could be rolled out more broadly. Or maybe not so fast. Here's Nina Skanka-Finemark again. There are a lot of other commissioners asking me about the openness on the tax list, but in my experience, most of them say that they think this wouldn't work as well in other countries, outside of um, Scandinavia at least. So, Mike, Alice, will you be campaigning for more pay transparency should New York go with full Norway? Yeah, I found that segment really fascinating. And I love the LinkedIn style effect that people know if you're going to have a look at their salary rather than the sort of snooping side of things. I think I probably agree with Hannah there that there's a bit of culture and political economy here. I know that's very difficult to measure. But as someone with a lot of British sensibilities, my blood runs cold when people start asking me what I earn or they want to discuss that openly. Norway has this very deep history of collective wage bargaining in the labour market. And so even without the transparency they've gone for, a lot of people do know a lot of people's salaries to a significant degree anyway, because a lot of that information is public. That's not the same in the Anglo world at all, where these labour relations are more cutthroat. I'm not sure whether that's good or not in the grand scheme of things, but it's very much instinctively baked into me. And I think I'd find it very tough indeed to get rid of that. 
Yeah, I found it fascinating that Norway had to implement this new system where you had to have a special code and people could see if you'd taken a look at what they earned. The social dynamics around this, the voyeurism of it, and it's fun to know what people make, but also it can drive you slightly mad with envy or, or whatever, is all so fascinating and quite difficult to sort of resolve how people should feel about it at a sort of macro level. Obviously, everyone has their own individual feelings. In terms of the economics of this, I also find it quite difficult to come out on a clear side in that it seems obviously good for the bargaining positions of workers but in places where pay transparency has been implemented as you pointed out it doesn't seem to have helped lift overall pay so who's really benefiting here I think it is is not entirely clear. Yeah I mean just thinking about I guess, the pros and cons of these kinds of policies, whether it should be expanded from New York to even more states. I suppose I'm uncomfortable with the idea that, oh, well, if we told you your pay, then it would make you unhappy and therefore we shouldn't, right? It's like, oh, you know, you think you want to know, but it'll make you sad. So we're not we're not going to tell you. And there's there's also a sense of, you know, transparency is supposed to be uncomfortable, right? It's supposed to reveal things that people then get kind of annoyed about and try to address, right? And so there's sort of a question of, yes, there may be initial resistance, but that's kind of the point, That said, obviously, Zoe's findings are super powerful, right? You do need to think about other policies, I think, that are complementary to this pay transparency policy that make sure that you don't suppress the overall bargaining power of workers too much. So maybe it needs to happen in conjunction with other things to increase labor bargaining power like unionization or or other mechanisms. Should we pivot to our stats We best. My stat of the week this week is 372 years or 186 elections. That is how many elections you would have to wait for there to be another lunar eclipse on an election day. If you got up in the middle of the night on Tuesday morning, you would have seen a sort of blood red moon lunar eclipse. And I don't know whether that's some sort of ominous omen for election day, uh, but if you wait another 372 years, it will happen again, assuming that they're still doing elections then. What about you, Mike? My statistic this week is about the automobile market, and it comes from Nikkei Asia. This is about Tesla's profitability per car, which is very impressive relative to other car makers. The net profit per vehicle came to $9,570 in the latest financial results. Nick, I have compared that to Toyota, where the profit per vehicle is around $1,200. Well, speaking of gaps, my stat of the week is entirely in with the theme of this week's episode. In April 2021, if you were to compare the median hourly pay of men and women at The Economist Group, you would see a gap of 22%. That is down from 30% in April 2017, when the British government first started requiring that that gap be published. So Mike is making Tesla money and we're making Toyota money. Is that what you're telling us, Sumaya? <laughs> Our thanks this week go to Zoe Cullen, Joel Gascoigne, Nina Skunkafinamark, Hannah Tarlison and Cecilia Hook. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. 
Our sound engineer was Nico Ralfast. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.